Welcome to the Game of Crowdfunding Interview Edition, recorded March 18th, 2015. And this interview is sponsored by one of our Patreon supporters, Nathan H. Nathan, thank you for supporting us over on Patreon. So that's right, I am back with another interview for you guys. We're going to be talking to somebody that's got a project on Kickstarter right now. Pretty exciting. I've uh, been looking forward to this one ever since we set it up. So, who is joining me on Skype tonight? Hi, I'm Chris Birch. I'm the founder of Modifius Entertainment. And the project that we are going to get to is, of course, the Thunderbirds board game project. And that's going to be a fun conversation. But as usual, we're going to get to know Chris a bit up front here. And um, I have a couple warm-up questions that I usually ask, and then after that, it'll just kind of get into the, the conversation aspect of the interview. So uh, are you ready for some pretty hard-hitting questions, Chris? Go ahead. <laughs> All right. Uh, since this is a standalone segment of the All Us Geeks podcast, we always like to ask, what makes you a geek, sir? <laughs> uh, if you could see the walls here and see all the toys surrounding I, uh, I have this, um, I guess it's a fetish for rescuing broken toys from, um, market stalls and car boot sales in England. So we go to Portobello market sometimes on a Sunday and they have these old trashy stalls and I'll find like an old McDonald's toy robot or a broken tank or something. And I seem to kind of collect this kind of odd, cool stuff, uh, for some reason. But I've been a geek since I was a kid, since I watched Star Wars about eight years old and played Dungeons and Dragons for the first time. So I think I've uh, I've got all the creds. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I don't think we've ever had anybody come on yet. I mean, we've had like Pez collectors and some other stuff. I don't think anybody's come on yet and talked about rescuing old toys. That's awesome. <laughs> all right. And then one of the other things we always like to point out is that you can really geek out about anything if you have a passion level for it. So do you have anything that you're uh, geek level passionate about that say the typical person would not consider geek related? Uh, <laughs> well, actually, probably it's squirrels, actually, funnily enough. <laughs> and uh, we used to live in a flat which had um, was ground flat and three very friendly squirrels in the garden. And so anyone you watched the last Kickstarter probably saw pictures of uh, it was a certain squirrel that used to sit on my shoulder as I was typing away, eating. So we uh, we geek out about squirrels now, funnily enough, and go and feed them in the local cemetery. There's about 15 that will just um, hang around and sit on your knee or uh, come up and be fed. It's quite hilarious. <laughs> nice. We bought a place not too long. Well, it's been a year now. Uh, but the one of the nice things is our backyard is we've got this bird feeder that was already there, and we brought our bird feeder along. So not only do we get a nice collection of birds, but of course all the squirrels come out for whatever hits the ground. And we've kind of watched these squirrels out the back of our, our kitchen now and the different personalities that come along. You know, we've got the big fat squirrel that is the only squirrel that's figured out how to get from the tree to the top of our bird feeder and open it. Yeah. So we come home every, <laughs> every day after work and got to put the, the top of the bird feeder back on because he's usually up there throughout the day hanging out we've got red squirrels that try to chase all the other squirrels away and and oh, there's wow. these, just these little tiny squirrels right but they're so hyper and active and and angry all the time i i've actually <laughs> i've actually watched them chase away huge like four or five times their size crows out of wow. yards so it's yeah we we get a kick out of just sitting in, and watching out our backyard 
and uh, watching all the activity. Oh. But squirrels, definitely, there's a ton of them in our backyard. <laughs> They're amazing. They're hilarious. I, I was building all these kind of cool little um, tricks for uh, the squirrels to play with and, and figure out how to get nuts in the garden. It was amazing. But uh, yeah, so that's my 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 geek, uh, probably the real geek thing that me and my wife Rita. And it's a good break actually from work. We just get away from the computers and and go and sit in the park and have a coffee and a sandwich and feed some squirrels. Well, there you go. You are the first person to give me collect uh, rescuing old toys and geeking out about squirrels. <laughs> <laughs> you you are now in a category all your own, sir. Oh yeah. <laughs> All right, so the last warm-up question we usually ask, besides publishing games, what else do you do for a living, sir? And you can be as general or specific as you need to be. Well, I, I kind of used to be in T-shirts, and um, when I started Modifius, I was still doing the T-shirt business and uh, making cool clothing based on video games. But I, I kind of, when the Acting Cthulhu Kickstarter took off, I stopped that and left. And then occasionally I organized parties for fun. And, uh, I know lots of people are DJs and, um, I, and I used to do that a lot more, but now I enjoy the gaming industry more and, and I've, I've done my fair share of parties. So but it's nice to do it occasionally because it's just a complete break from what I do. Yeah. I suppose thinking about it now, cause I used to do some DJing as well way back when. And at the time I, I even kind of, once I got out of the military, I used to do it while I was in the military. Um, oh, cool. when I came back to the States and I had a pretty stable place that I was at after I came back. But then when I got out of the military, I actually kind of took it as a kind of a side gig and I started doing things like weddings and, and, you know, boat parties and stuff like that. Um, yeah. and, and at that point it switched from, being kind of this cool thing that I always did and hobby and thing I had a real passion for too. I had passion for it, but now it was like a job and it took up like every one of my weekends. So yeah. I couldn't do anything. <laughs> else. So I would think, yeah, kind of going back now, like I'm no longer dependent on it for like a paycheck or anything like that. It would be kind of fun to, to kind of, you know, reinvent yourself in it or whatever. That'd be fun. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I remember once I was, um, we were working Monday to Friday in the office kind of organizing these club nights and then Friday, Saturday night was like 10 till nine in the morning in these like big techno club nights that we were doing. And then, you know, you try and recover all weekend and then you're back at the office. It was crazy. <laughs> right. Yeah. And if you're, if you're lucky, you've got the Sunday to recover, but you even might hit something every once in a while on a Sunday and yeah. And, and you just, yeah, yeah, the whole, all right, well now it's time. Oh, no, no day job, day job. Yeah. Yeah. It was fun. <laughs> it was fun at the time, but, uh, I got bored of it after a while because it was, you just have no, you have a social life, but you have a social life kind of looking after everyone else and making sure everyone else has a good time, which is great fun for a bit. But you know, after a while, you want to be able to do your own thing. So yeah. All right. So, um, you did mention Octon Cthulhu and I did want to talk about that a little bit because that was one of your first Kickstarter. Well, that was your first Kickstarter, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And I actually remember that going on because that was. We used to do, and and we're going to start them up again. Uh, the game of crowdfunding started as draft picks, where we 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 call it the fantasy football style drafting of Kickstarter projects. So me yeah. and another co-host, we would pick five projects and match them up against each other, and <laughs> we kind of did this fantasy football style point scoring by percentage over funded, total number of backers and total money collected. 
Yeah. And we would do these five matchups and I picked Octon Cthulhu. I remember that specifically. <laughs> so you, I believe you got me a good amount of points there, sir. So thank you first for that. Uh, cool. <laughs> so, so from that point on, I kind of knew like that. And then I, I, I can't remember if I picked Mutant Chronicles or not because there's also some things about it, it can't be funded by the time we record and stuff like that. So yeah, uh, you can't yeah. always pick what you want, but I remember watching Mutant, Mutant Chronicles. I just can't remember if I was able to pick it. So I'm kind of aware of you for quite a while, <laughs> but this is the first time you and I actually get to have a conversation. Yeah, that's the great thing with uh, interviews. One, thank you for the points because I have since lost poorly at that game, and that's probably maybe <laughs> maybe why somebody else is going to take over my spot for a while. <laughs> I hope you got some prizes because points mean prizes, of course. <laughs> Uh, no, it's just the, the fun, it, it, it's a, it was a fun yeah. little way for us to, um, yeah. talk about projects without being dry about it. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah, of course. Yeah. So, so we're going to start those back up. It's a good idea. What made you, okay. So you, you were in the t-shirt industry, you said prior to this, what was the switch for you t- to kind of want to say, you know what? I need to, to do the gaming side specifically from a business perspective? Well, I was, um, I mean, I've, I've been into games all my life and I, I did a game called Star Blazer Adventures for Fate back in 2004, 2005. And, um, whilst I was running the t-shirt company for about 13 years and that was my kind of first, uh, chance at kind of doing a commercial game and loved it, but it burnt me out. And then, uh, and then I did Legends of Anglaire with Sarah Newton about three or four years later. And, um, so I got the taste for doing it, but it, you know, that the, there wasn't enough money in it to do it, you know, for, for a job, you know, for me at the time anyway. And, um, and then, but I'd started to get bored of the t-shirt business. It wasn't as creative as, as, as it was when I first started. And, and, um, uh, it, it, you know, it turned into more of a slog just trying to sell another thousand t-shirts rather than being really creative and creating some really cool designs and graphics. And then Kickstarter came along, of course. And at the same time, I got married to Rita and we were in Belarus because she's from Belarus, visiting some of the cool tank museums and um, battle sites. And there's some amazing stuff over there. And I'd, I'd been to thinking about creating a new business and doing something different. And we were toying with the idea of there was a, cool, a, a great plastics company over there. We were thinking about teaming up with them and doing some toy soldiers and all kinds of stuff actually and there were some people who were interested in investing and uh and then kickstarter started buzzing along and i was like oh wow this is great but it's you had to know someone in america to do it because you you needed to have an american bank account at the time and then acting you know we basically came back from belarus and started modifius just doing these fun little um role-playing adventures come up with the idea of uh of doing Acting Cthulhu from playing Flames of War, actually. And I thought, oh, wouldn't it be great? Uh, with a group of us were playing, you know, wouldn't it be great to have, you know, monsters or zombies and stuff to Flames of War? And I, I was a big fan of the, um, Sergeant Rock comics and the Weird War comics that I used to get from my grandfather's bookshop when I was a kid. And I'd read them all weekend and then give them back so you could sell them on Monday. <laughs> so that gave me all the ideas for this sort of weird war stories. 
so I came up with the name and I was going to kind of develop these ideas. Sarah Newton had a, a series of adventures set in World War Two for Call of Cthulhu. So we basically took those under our wing as Acting Cthulhu. And that was our first releases. And I used to run a PR company before. So I went hell for leather doing all the PR and got lots of interviews and press and features on on this new series of adventures and this sort of universe and it just really took off. And then Kickstarter announced that they were going to start in the UK. So I was kind of debating about it and thinking about it and working on it. And then, you know, you can, and sometimes you can think about it too much. I was going to do a miniatures Kickstarter to start with. And then we, we did this big questionnaire and people were way more excited about role playing books than the miniatures. So we switched to, um, and I actually had, I've still got the, the little miniatures Kickstarter page that we built right at the beginning. And, and so we switched to a um, book, you know, Kickstarter. And I thought, well, you know, we'll probably get sort of 10 grand because I'd seen some other, you know, role-playing games that um, had done okay in the UK. And I was thinking, well, you know, we're in pounds. So that's going to be hard for the American market. And, you know, and it's a supplement. It's not a whole role-playing game, but it's still World War Cthulhu. And I knew those things were, were doing well. And it went ballistic. So, like, you know, day two we funded and then I was, I'd already kind of not left the, the t-shirt company, but I started doing a couple of days from home working. And then I took a day off to do my own thing. And I was doing some freelance work for a, um, a video games company, helping them out with some merchandising and costing out some toys and games and all kinds of stuff for them. So I, I was able to spend more time on it at home and. But as the Kickstarter progressed, it obviously soon became clear that this, what I had thought I was funding a book so that we could make some more money and I could then, you know, actually pay myself to be working from home a day a week to like, oh my God, I'm going to have to go full time because we'll never, um, you know, it'll never happen otherwise. And so it, you know, it was this sort of, sort of through the, through the month, you know, I kind of let the business know that, that I wasn't going to be part of it anymore. And my partners in the, there were like, fine. They were kind of, uh, we'd sort of already been kind of cutting backs for people anyway. So they, they were quite happy for, to cut the wage bill. And, and I was really happy to kind of move on. And it was just a sort of fantastic timing. And I suppose we were one of the bigger English Kickstarters at the time. You know, just all those right elements, Cthulhu, World War Two, Nazis and zombies and role playing all mixed up. And, and we funded uh, 11 books and managed to, we were a bit late at the beginning, we managed to deliver kind of 70% of them, the main wave, you know, by Christmas that year. And then we did delivered a load more in the autumn last year. And then we've got like the final, final wave, which is fantastic, which... Uh, which has been the, the latest part of it. And when you, when you work with so many creative people, you can't help but have people problems that people let you down and other people come in and people with no experience turn out to be amazing and people with loads of experience sometimes aren't. And, uh, all kinds of stuff happens over the course of the year and you, you learn a lot of lessons. But, um, so anyway, we've got some fantastic two final campaign books coming out and beautiful hardcovers that are probably the most well-researched genius campaigns you'll ever you know you'll see for Call of Cthulhu and, and Savage Worlds are incredible so that's really exciting to see it coming come to a close in, in a couple of months so yeah quite a ride 
<laughs> yeah. And, you know, you hit on a couple points that I think are, are extremely important. One, you, like you said, you funded 11 books out of that when you started off with something just a, a quite a bit smaller as the original yeah. offering. And you've delivered a lot of them, like you said, already. So to kind of be this far along and only have a few books left to do, I think is actually pretty amazing because you actually are making sure that you put out quality stuff for this line. Yeah. Actually, we went to, um, we were late, uh, for the final stage for about 300 people. And we went to all the backers and said, look, we realize we're late and we're happy to give you, we'll either ship what you, what we've got now. Cause some people were waiting on the first wave of books because they only paid for one shipment. Mm-hmm. And so we said, look, we'll ship at our cost, um, everything that's ready now. All we're going to give you another 20 pounds, $30 worth of stuff that you can choose from our, the range. Uh, in your final shipment. And I was very open. I said, look, obviously that doesn't actually cost us 20 quid because the cost of the stuff is a lot less. So, um, I said, you know, it'll cost us probably about six grand if everyone chooses to go with the shipment, but you know, we'll deal with it and it'll cost us about a grand if, um, if people don't. And, uh, but we're, we're then able to give you more cool stuff. But the reason is we need to take more time to finish those last books and they are delayed, but for all sorts of reasons. But we want to make them really amazing, and I, I don't. I don't want to keep going. Oh yeah, it's next month. It's next month. We just need to spend time and get them and get them finished and focus on it. And most people went for the uh, the extra goodies in the shipments, and um, you know we shipped a load of stuff out earlier. So that was, I think, that was really good. And um, and we do try and work hard to keep people happy. I think we're one of the best, one of the best companies for talking to people, and you know we're always on the Kickstarter always replying, always messaging, you know, anytime someone emails, oh, I don't understand this, or can you help me with my order? We always try and email them back because they're the pay- people paying the bills. And I think a lot of people forget that. It's like when you run club, you get these sort of RC people on the door who give you a hard time trying to get in. It's like, well, wait a minute, I'm actually paying your wage tonight. <laughs> and so I think that's the same thing with, you know, your your customers. You you know, they're absolute number one priority. You've got to look after them and make them feel loved and that you care about them. It, you haven't just taken their money and running this swanky company and doing all the things you want to do. You've still got to give them some really good value and really good service. Definitely. No, that, that is awesome to hear because I, I'm 100% there with you. It's, you can overcome a lot of things on Kickstarter, just being open and willing to communicate. Yeah. And admitting that you're wrong sometimes. Like with the Thunderbirds Kickstarter, we had this idea to do the, a role-playing game for it. And I decided to not fund the kind of the role-playing set that it's basically going to come with, uh, you'll be able to use it with the base game components. So it's not like a full-blown series of books. It's just a sort of, it's a, a cool little role-playing booklet with some extra cards and stuff. And so I decided that we were going to fund that ourselves and unlock it as an add-on. And there was a few, you know, there was a lot of discussion, oh, you know, why are you doing this? It's a board game Kickstarter. And we thought, well, actually, what we're trying to do is create a really fun, family-friendly role-playing game that's a natural extension of this game. We're not trying to create another kind of Dungeons & Dragons in the world of Thunderbirds. Uh, And then we had a a kind of stretch goal for role-playing miniatures that I thought was a really good idea at the time. There was a lot of discussion about it, and then we did a big survey and said, okay, are you getting the, the role-playing game? What do you think should be the next Stretch Girls? Because we busted through four big expansions, the main stuff we've been working on, and, and wanted to see really what do people want next. And it was clearly not the role-playing miniatures. 
And if I was someone else, I might have gone, you know what? I want the role playing miniatures and I want to fund that. And so uh, I just thought, well, actually, let's change things. Let's reorganize the uh, stretch goals. And we um, brought forward a load of kind of kind of more basic upgrades, some extra event cards, some, you know, some better quality cards across the whole line and just some stuff that I'd been saving just for the end, just to that I knew we'd probably fund. So I thought, well, okay, well, let's get this all done first and show that. You know, we actually are concerned with making a fantastic game and giving everyone the board game value that they came on board for. And it's important that you listen to people and change. And that's why doing surveys before you run a Kickstarter is very, very good because you understand then what your fans are coming to you for and what they think is more important. You might think it's a real genius idea to do loads of adventures for your role-playing game or loads of expansions, but actually maybe what they want is just, they just want more artwork in the core book, or maybe they just want better quality components for the base game, and they don't want the expansions. And it and it doesn't matter if you've got 100 people or 5,000 people. If they care about it, you'll, you'll be amazed at how many people turn out and answer the survey. We had a 1,000 people answer the Thunderbirds survey out of the 2,500 backers. So it was really, really, really interested levels of, you know, people were really passionate about it and I went through all the comments and you know read everything that people said and took on board loads of stuff and, and there was lots of people like yeah you're doing a great job just get on with it and obviously lots of people like oh don't do too much because you know we don't want it to be delayed and we've been quite careful getting lots of stuff ready for the kickstarter so we um we didn't have loads of work too much work to do afterwards but we're also being careful like you know not taking on there's lots of crazy ideas we could do now you know you can kind of sense where the kickstarter will end up but we don't want to overpromise. you know another good example is painted figures and it's such a cool idea wouldn't it be great to have all the miniatures painted yes it would but it's a complete nightmare with the factory because you've got a create very very detailed painting guides you've got to get samples done and it will take a lot longer the risk is that a lot of backers don't get their deliveries before christmas because they chose the painted ones and as much as it seems like a good idea the actual level of work involved it isn't really worth it for the return and you'd also have to you know we'd have to commit to like at least a thousand sets that are painted of everything which would be very expensive so that would have to be a very big stretch goal that potentially takes up the space of a stretch goal that gives everyone much better value so all that information is really brilliant and i wish a lot more designers and, and people who run projects would just take that extra kind of week or so to email everyone tell me what you think of this you know what which of these 10 things would you rather see as a stretch goal you know do you want a t-shirt do you do you yeah do you actually want a dice bag and they'll probably be surprised that the lots of people are more bothered about content and quality than they are about the fluff right now the interesting thing with the fluff is and i did a lot of it with acting cathedral and there's lots of advice which is whatever you do don't do the fluff don't do all the dice and the dice bags and the t-shirts now i i come from a, a company where we were doing four big fashion ranges a year and we were doing all the merchandise for like Battlefield for example and we were doing like 300 SKUs of all kinds of different merchandise you can imagine like for Battlefield we had like t-shirts and hoodies and wristbands and pendants and dog tags and books and all kinds of stuff so I'm kind of used to having to do 
a lot of stuff really quickly. And so like Mutant Chronicles, we had loads, you know, we had patches and posters and miniatures and uh, bags designed in China and all kinds of stuff and pendants and coins. All of that stuff was ready first because it's really easy, actually, if you know what you're doing, if you know where to go. You know, for a lot of people, they don't know how would you make a metal coin? You know, no idea. You know, you start looking on Google and you probably get ripped off. But, you know, if you, you've got that experience, it really, obviously really helped me. And um, so being a T-shirt mogul for uh, 10 years, you know, really helped kind of get that level of production going. But interestingly, when you launch those things in your Kickstarter, you do see a surge. When you when you add on the dice, you get a surge of funding. But weirdly enough, you'll find that not many people buy them. So just by the fact that you went out into all the forums and said, hey, we've got some cool branded dice or we've got the miniatures now, you'll get a lot more people just going, oh, yeah, I forgot about that Kickstarter. Yeah, I better go and uh, back it. Or, oh, that's a cool idea. But they don't necessarily choose your add-on that you just spent loads of time working on. So um, whilst we did lots of extra merchandise wrapped in Cthulhu, we didn't actually sell a lot of it. In the end, though, do you think that was maybe a good thing for the project overall? Yeah, I, I saw it as, uh, I mean, they've gradually sold. So not only did we pay for them through the Kickstarter, enough of them sold that it was kind of worthwhile, but we definitely had spikes. So anytime we announced, oh, we're doing these really cool patches, there was a spike in backers. And I've not done it so much with Thunderbirds because I wanted to keep it really simple and, and I wanted to deliver by August. So I didn't want to do anything that, you know, potentially slows uh, stuff down and, and, and try to keep it quite simpler around the um, the actual board game itself. Yeah. If you kind of have some suppliers that you know about and you've got a good idea, but I would say ask the backers first. Yeah. Do you want a T-shirt? Do you want some cool metal coins to use as fate points? Do you want some custom dice? Do you want a giant rug, which is a map of your world? <laughs> we did a tablecloth-sized map for uh, Meeting Chronicles, which is amazing. It's with this company that makes flags in Bulgaria. They're beautiful. They're like a work of art. And uh, you just want to... Actually, it reminds me of a scene in... Uh, Iron Sky, where the, the Nazi on the moon is playing this kind of weird game with wooden rockets and stuff on this giant map of the world. And uh, it just means you can, I can recreate that, which is brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think where, you know, a lot of times when I'm talking to people, I always kind of tell them that probably just forego the t-shirt thing it's it's usually not a good idea like you said for yourself though i mean you had an in you understood that part of it but for a lot of people it's in my opinion it's kind of an unnecessary burden that they take on that actually ends yeah. up taking money away from their actual product yeah the it'll help build the product if people actually or it'll help build you what you're funding at you'll get more money mm. but is it money that's actually going to go towards your game? Have you planned it out properly enough that it's not yeah. taking away from your game? And I think that's where some people get into it. Absolutely, issue. yeah. The other thing to remember is when you're not doing it full-time, there's a lot of work to do in putting together all those extra stuff. If you're raising enough money that you think, you know what, I can do this, I can do do this like um, at least part time, then you're going to have the time to organize it. But, you know, throwing in a load of extra stuff that... Um, if you've paid for it with a stretch goal, it works. 
if you're throwing it in as an add-on, the risk is that people are paying for that. You're hitting a, another higher stretch goal to pay for something else, but you're kind of deluding yourself that you've raised that much money because they, you know, maybe some people have bought all those extra t-shirts, but then you've got the cost of delivering those t-shirts. And they're also the paying with t-shirts is they come in like, 10 sizes, you know, from 5XL down to extra, extra small. You know, it's not like a dice where you've got, you order a thousand dice. You've got to, you've got to find out all the sizes your backers want and make sure every backer gets the correct size. So it's an individually kind of almost personalized item that everyone's getting that he's ordered it. So that's been harder for the packing. If you're, unless you, and if you're doing it yourself or you're paying a company to do it is making sure that they get the right size t-shirt can end up costing you money because what happens when they got the wrong t-shirt? Then do you pay them to ship the one that's wrong back, but then that costs you shipping? Or do you send them another t-shirt, but did you order enough t-shirts in that size? What happens when you run out of the mediums? You've got to order another hundred t-shirts minimum. You know, you can see it quick comes the pain. But, you know, maybe you've got a fantastic design and your fan base is really up for t-shirts, in which case that's going to bring some money in. And it's, it's all, it's different for every project. And that's why I say, talk to your, talk to your fans, find out what excites them. You know, I've seen so many people do t-shirts and it's the worst design you can imagine. And it's probably costing them money. Uh, I bet they don't sell many. And, um, you know, it's make sure you get people who don't care what you think to tell you what they think <laughs> to give you a really hard you know opinion that is a terrible design what on earth are you doing <laughs> right. before we start talking specifically about thunderbirds there's a couple other things i wanted to kind of point out that you touched on for octan cthulhu which again was your first project you brought it out at a time like you said early on when they had finally opened up beyond u.s so you, you were dealing with, like you said, and, and this was, this is actually a big factor. I don't know how many people realize it today as much because you're seeing more projects across different areas and you may kind of get used to seeing it in non-US currency. But at the time, it was a huge thing to see something that was not in US dollars and to kind of worry about if you were going, you know, especially as a U.S. backer, suddenly kind of some of the tables were turned. It's like, okay, well, now I might be more worried about, well, it's going to cost me forever. It's going to cost me a bunch to ship to. The currency conversion rate from my credit card. Some some credit cards do a con- yeah. add-on uh, percentages because they're cross-currencies, stuff like that. So it was a time where it was odd to see and that and it actually kind of kept some people away. So in those early stages and you launching Octan Cthulhu in those early stages, just want to point out, I mean, you did amazingly well with this project. I mean, you raised over 2000%, yeah. uh, which was amazing. And you had almost 2000 backers. So yeah, this wasn't something like a, a few people were giving you a ton of money. You had a nice base there that a lot of people even now would like to see with their projects. I mean, that, that would be a huge goal for them to have that many backers behind their project. Yeah. And it, the, the money thing, uh, the, the pounds versus dollars, again, that was something I asked in the survey. Uh, do you, if you're not English or British, are you going to have a problem with uh, backing a project in pounds? And the numbers weren't that high, so I wasn't really worried. And I think it was, it had that dr- enough of a draw 
that people just figured it out. And, and who knows? Maybe if we were in dollars, we could have doubled that number. Maybe, maybe there were loads of people who were like, Oh, I don't get it. You know, and I don't, I'm on a risk paying in pounds. Um, but I, I, I think because the numbers were out of those 2000, about 800 Americans and about 400 Brit, uh, which funny enough is it's pretty much the same reverse for Thunderbirds. It's, um, kind of double the Brits to the, uh, to the Americans this time, but obviously Thunderbirds was bigger in the UK. Well, and that's, that's a good spot right there for us to transition. I, I know we kind of glossed over the Mutant Chronicles stuff, but. Uh, I want to make sure we give Thunderbirds its due because that's what's on Kickstarter right now for people to go check out. So sure. this is a good time for you to give me kind of your elevator pitch for the Thunderbirds game. <laughs> well, it's um Thunderbirds was this incredible TV show in the 60s that was set in 2065. And it was absolutely stunning models of incredible rescue machines and disasters across the world. And there was super rich family, Tracy, who lived on a, on a secret island, Tracy Island, funnily enough, that traveled around the world in the Thunderbirds, these incredibly advanced machines that uh, went to the rescue. And so they would rock up in Thunderbird 2 or Thunderbird 1, these incredible, you know, amazing uh, like rocket or um, transport machines. And all these kind of cool little rescue machines would, would come out of the pod bay and they, you know, they have all these dramas. And the unusual thing was it was done with puppets and they called it super marionation or after sort of marionette. And it was very unique sort of television at the time. And it also pioneered, you know, the model uh, effects were incredible. And it they had dirty, greasy engines and trucks and massive tractors long before Star Wars had them. And, um, you know, you can tell that when the model makers were doing Star Wars, they were probably watching Thunderbirds because that whole kind of dirty sci-fi look was done way back in the 60s. You know, it wasn't new. And weirdly, Thunderbirds became this, uh, it was in France, it was in um, some countries it, it wasn't in, and America it was in at the beginning, a bit like Doctor Who, not that big, but the number of people who got into it was actually quite sizable. And it became this thing that just translated through generation after generation, because there was no stupid little creatures, there was no annoying little robot that, you know, oh, the kids will need a little robot to be friends with. All the characters were old and cool and really good at what they did. It's a bit like, you know, when you watch Star Wars, you want to, you want to be Han Solo. You don't want to be, uh, you want to be the older, um, more capable guy. So Thunderbirds was really good for adults and families to watch with the kids. So, and then what would happen is the kids grow up and then they'd introduce their kids to Thunderbirds. And you had this like wave of toys around Thunderbirds that every five to ten, every five or ten years, it would a massive re-release of all the Thunderbird toys and it would be really big again and be all over TV and then it would go away and then it would come back again. And and that, that's what's happened for the last 50 years. And then, uh, you know, we got to the 50th anniversary and we came up with the idea of doing a board game based on it. So I thought it would be a fantastic co-op game because you're working together as the, as the team trying to rescue people. So there's no, um, there is kind of death and destruction in it, but it's, it's very much you're trying to stop that. And we figured, well, who who should we go to? Well, let's start from the top. And that's really got to be Matt Leacock. And we pitched in the idea at Essen. He didn't know what Thunderbirds was because he wasn't one of the Americans that had seen it. He was kind of aware of it. But I knew once he watched it, he would get hooked. And he went back and watched it with his family. And it was just, you know, he loved it. So it was a match made in heaven. And here we are a year later. We've got a great game. 
So you always had it in mind to be a cooperative, which makes sense for the show. Yeah. And you went to Matt Leacock. I was going to ask you how that came about, but you answered that. You guys talked about it in Essen. So what do you think it was that specifically was a draw for Matt to kind of come on board and say, yeah, let's work on this game? I think it was that it's very much a... I mean, he said, you know, he said in various interviews that it's, you know, it didn't, you know, it didn't dumb down the story for kids. And, you know, there's a lot of kind of sort of adult themes in there. And also, you know, it's, it's a real positive story. It's, you know, it's about a bunch of really capable people who dedicate their lives to rescuing people around the world. And they do it in these amazing, exciting, um, sci-fi machines. So it's just got all these factors that make it a great, well, it's just really easy to sell to people, you know. And even, you know, if people don't know Thunderbirds, I just say, well, you know, think about Matt's last big game pandemic where there's millions of people dying from viruses. And now you've got a game where you can save millions of people. So there's a kind of <laughs> win-win. So for this game, what are you bringing into it that kind of sets it apart from other co-ops that are out there right now? Well, it, I mean, it doesn't have the, the whole kind of traitor mechanic because it doesn't work with the theme. There are, you know, there are no traitors. It is designed to be played with kids. I think it's just a very strong theme. I think what's really great about this game is it's the first, uh, oh, it's going to be one of the first real games to cross over between families and gamers. It's got everything that you need for game night. It's got loads of deep strategy and it's really hard like any other Matt Leacock game. But it's got this beautiful theme. It's really fun and it's uh, a really fantastic level of, you know, when you play it at the basic simple level, it's perfect for playing with kids. And that's why we're aiming for a 10 and up age rating on the game. You know, we're hoping we're going to get it into bookstores as well as gaming stores. And Matt's done this incredible job on bringing to life this the, the whole Thunderbird story and the expansions we've got planned um, that we've unlocked with Kickstarter really add some cool things to it. There's more characters, of course, but there's an insane level of difficulty expansion, uh, which also adds in the ability to level up your characters. And then we've just finished the Play the Hood expansion, which right, yeah. adds the fifth player. And the fifth player gets to be the Hood, who's this uh, evil mastermind who's determined to um, take photographs of the interiors of the machines and and then sell the secrets of these wonder machines to the governments and criminal organizations around the world. So um, and we're kind of revealing more about that over the next week, but it's, it's we think people are going to be fighting to play the Hood's role because He's going to have a great time messing with everyone. He's got all the, you know, these kind of agents and that you can use and uh, some more cool vehicles and his secret base. And um, he's going to be able to really make International Rescue's day a nightmare. So um, that's really fun. And then, of course, we've got the the kind of role-playing experience that we've got um, Tim Brown, who wrote Dark Sun, and uh, Cam Banks, who uh, worked on Marvel Heroic and Leverage, etc. for Margaret Weiss. They've um, got a cunning plan to, uh, to pull together this uh, fun introductory role-playing experience that utilizes all the board game, the core board game components. You know, one of the things, and just real quick for our, our audience, Chris was kind enough to send me a prototype to take a look at. And uh, it, it just arrived, so we're not sure if we're going to get out before the Kickstarter ends, but he has uses for it after it ends as well. So uh, we will definitely be taking a look at it. But one of the cool things that I really kind of like about it, Chris, is that you've gone ahead between you know you guys and Matt and captured the feeling of actually utilizing the vehicles and stuff because you can kind of get in and out of the different vehicles 
and pilot the different vehicles and do different things with the vehicles where you really could have, if you wanted to, and potentially as a cost savings as well, just said, well, this character is always part of this vehicle. You know what I mean? Just kind of do like a cardboard cutout thing. and Yeah, yeah. But you've really incorporated into the game the use of and some of the actions and free actions are around utilizing and getting in and out and switching vehicles and stuff. So I think that's kind of yeah. cool. Yeah, I mean, that was, I mean, that was definitely part of it because the Tracy brothers, there's five of them. They, in the series, they do pilot each, you know, different machines. Sometimes they're not always in the same machine. Part of the fun is going, well, uh, okay, so if I have Virgil and York Scott, well, you know, if you meet me in Thunderbird 1 here, we could probably do this mission, but it's going to be a risk. And then Rita, you know, she can take Thunderbird 4 and she might just get there in time. And it's like, oh, what should we do? You know, but you could bring Tintin with you because we'll get a bonus with her. And uh, and if you stop off, you might be able to pick up Penelope and Fab 1 and <laughs> so it's this real fun teamwork. You know, you've really got to think about how you're going to figure out this puzzle, which is the, the different missions that are coming out every turn. And you start with three and there's a new one every turn. But at the same time, you can't forget about the, the hood because he's progressing on his big scheme track. And if he reaches one of his three schemes, then you lose. So you've got to deal with the first one and then you've got a bit more time to deal with more missions, but then you've got to deal with the second one. So the pressure's constantly on you. The ability to move around machines gets, means you get to have fun in all the different machines. Lots of people have their favourites, you know. Thunderbird 2 is this amazing green transport jet that looks beautiful. Every show it would pick up a different kind of um, carrier pod and you'd never know what was inside. And uh, sometimes it was like these amazing lifting machines. Sometimes it was this kind of giant drill called the Mole. And sometimes it was Thunderbird 4, which is a sort of cool submarine. And they had all sorts of other machines. And you always wonder, well, which one are we going to see this episode? So they've really kind of captured that in the design. You've kind of already answered this question a bit, maybe. But I, I want to give you a chance to kind of pinpoint in on it. Uh, and it's a question I always like to ask. Let's say somebody's listening to this interview and they, they've decided to pause it or whatever, but they've gone out and checked out the Thunderbirds Kickstarter page and they're kind of looking at it and they go, you know what? Uh, I think this might be for me, but they're a little bit on the fence. Do you have a couple things that you would point out to them to make them go, you know what, Chris, you're absolutely right. I have to back Thunderbirds right now. <laughs> well, I guess we unlocked four expansions. So for £65, which is about 99 bucks, you're getting about double. You're getting about $200 of value in extras. But, you know, you can just go for the base game, which is £40 or about $60. And that's got some upgrades and cool extra stuff in it. It's a bit cheaper than the retail version. We've kept the postage price pretty low and we kept, we've reduced it about four times. It's been a bit nuts. So, of course, you'll get it before retail. But I always say to people, you know what? If you still buy it from shops, it's all fine. It all supports us in the long run. You know, we've funded a lot of goals. And um, I always say to people, if you know, if you're not sure about your money, don't spend it, you know, save it. And we always keep the Kickstarter open for a couple of months afterwards. So you've always got a chance to um, to join in and get that deal. And you can even spread out, you know, so you could get the main, the Kickstarter, at the, you know, pledge at the moment, but then decide to add some stuff later on and pay for your postage. You know, we, uh, we take the, you know, you can pay for your postage like after the Kickstarter, like even a month later. So there's, there's all sorts of ways. I try and make it as easy as possible for people because I realize, 
you know, we all know what it's like to be a gamer. You know, there's always another game that you want. There's always, it always costs more than you, you think. And, um, so I, I like to try and make it as easy as possible. But I, I'd just say, you know, if you want to, if you want a great family game that you're going to be able to pull out on game night and everyone's going to have a brilliant time and you're going to lose and you're going to have so much fun losing that you're going to want to play again. And the games play quickly. It's, you know, anywhere from, like I said, I lost in five minutes if you play badly. But, you know, you can play like in an hour and a half, you can probably play a good couple of games, if not three. And so it's really, really, really fun. And who doesn't want some cool plastic Thunderbirds machines? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Who doesn't want to jump in and out of the different vehicles and go around the world and save the day? Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm really good at not selling people on it because, uh, I just, like I said, we're really open and we, we care about customers such that we, you know, we want you to buy it when it's the right time for you to buy it. So if you think you can take advantage of the deal, then great. If you, you want to dip your toe in and get the base game, but you can always upgrade later on in a couple of months and still get that deal. Uh, there's no rush, you know, to, to get on board, but we're going to be out in retail in September. So if you'd rather support your local store, which is really good, we had a retail pledge as well, where the retailers don't have to, they literally are paying us a, a deposit and then they, they, they pay us when we ship the stock to them because a lot of Kickstarters make them pay up front and that's why they don't like it, uh, cause they're having to commit all their money, you know, months ahead of, uh, when they would, you know, would normally have to by buying it through distributors. So we're trying to make it as friendly as possible so everyone benefits from it. That's awesome. And also, I appreciate the kind of upfrontness and honesty about, you know, hey, if if it's something you can afford now, right now and you want to support us, that's great. If not, we will be in stores because I had a brief stint in sales as well in my nefarious past. And I wasn't a great salesman, but I had... <laughs> a few loyal followers that followed me to actually like three different stores. And the biggest reason was, was because I wasn't a great salesman because I always was honest with people. (laughs) So somebody would come in and and like, Hey, I want to buy this. And I'm like, you really don't want to buy that. So I would lose that sale, but that's the person that would come back to me the next week and said, you know what? You were cool with me about this. What do you think of this? Yeah. By the end of it, I had people that were following me to three different stores but you know, my bosses always hated it because they always <laughs> like, why didn't you sell that? And I'm like, cause it's crap and he wouldn't have been happy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. I appreciate that. Well, also I'm always aware of people who, you know, they're really pushing the limit to try and afford stuff. And yeah, it's a great deal, but maybe hang on because we don't need the We funded for stretch girls. You know, we've, there are a lot of great Kickstarters that are struggling and, you know, great ideas but as much as I'd love to get more people on board and we could, it's always good to, you know, sell more, of course, but I'd rather someone not stretch themselves and be struggling to pay for food uh, or um, get in trouble with the wife or the husband <laughs> than, uh, you know, and cause there's always another way to get the game, you know, and let's face it. So uh, we just try and give as much you know, as good a deal as possible for people who do get on board. So at least they are getting great value for the money that they do give us. And, you know, that's always been the thing I hope to do with all our Kickstarters. You know, we've both, both role playing Kickstarters, Mutant Chronicles and Acting Cthulhu. I think if you got on board the basic level at £35 for Acting Cthulhu, you got all 11 books in PDF. So it's about 2000 pages. 
So I think it's probably we've had some of the best deals on Kickstarter in terms of giving people really amazing value for the money they give us. You've kind of already shared a really good one with us, and that's obviously the open communication with your potential backers and customers. You know, we, we can go ahead and, and call it having three successful Kickstarters under your belt because this one is obviously going very successful and is funded and, and is unlocking stretch goals. Uh, there's still time left on it, but do you have any other pieces of advice you'd like to share with uh, people coming up behind you that might be looking at, say, even like their first Kickstarter? Yeah, I think the press thing is the is the biggest advice I could give. And that's a lot of people think Board Game Geek and RPG Net and Nworld and, you know, the, you know, the half dozen kind of big players. And, and those are the places you go. But there's actually about 900 people we've got on our database who are bloggers and website owners and writers and reviewers and podcasters. And there are so many that once you research them, it's a real, if, and again, if you look after them and talk to them and don't just spam them with the fact that you've gone, gone to have breakfast today and you've got a great <laughs> idea for a game. <laughs> Some people do, you know, but if you, if you really look after the people that support you with press, there's an enormous uh, resource to get you coverage. And, and you'll see, if you only look at our press page, you'll see how many interviews we've done and features. And, and uh, you know, if you Google Acting Cthulhu, if you Google Thunderbirds Ballgame, you'll see how much coverage we've had. And it's really easy to do that. And I'll give you a few quick lessons. And that is basically, you know, like I get, I'll give you a good example. So um, with Acting Cthulhu, we went out and looked at some other big role-playing books that were on kickstarter and we um googled we found a story about you know here's a good example okay let's say you're doing another post-apocalyptic game so maybe um look up the story on numenera and uh find out what story they were saying about numenera so you know numenera is on kickstarter then basically Google that and find every website that talks about Numenera and Kickstarter or copy us. If you're doing a board game, look at all the, all the websites that have talked about Thunderbirds, the board game and go to every single one of those websites and find their contact details and put that email address into an Excel sheet and then do it again and do it for another board game. Do it for, um, here is a Normandy or for Epic Galaxies or, you know, any of the other board games that you think are close to the game that you're doing. And do it again, and do it again, and do it again. And don't go out tomorrow night to that dinner that you were hoping to go because you're doing it again and again and again and again. And you do it a hundred times and you'll have a database close to 900 people of press. And if you categorize them by this is a board game site and they don't do role playing news or this is a role playing site or they, or this is a site that does everything or this is a geek site that covers toys and board games then you won't annoy people when you start sending out your press release about your amazing board game. And that's how you get a press list. And it's not that hard. And most people don't do it because they don't, they'd rather play Xbox tomorrow night or hang out with their mates and have a drink and not do the work. And it's, if you're willing to do the work there, all the success is there to be, you know, and obviously if you've got a good game and you've got some good artwork, but it's one of those critical things. If you don't, I see so many people to, Oh, I don't, how do I get the, the people talking about our game? And, you know, I've posted on Board Game Geek, but no one seems to be interested. It's like, there's so many people who are interested. And my philosophy is, I don't care if someone's podcast gets 10 people 
or a million people or 5,000. Everyone's important. And I, I started a PR company in, in England for video games companies doing internet PR right, right at the beginning of uh, 2000 when, you know, the whole idea of promoting on the internet was quite new. And the people who were the little podcasters are now the editors of all the magazines. And, you know, so we've ended up getting some really big magazine coverage because of those relationships I started 10 years ago by um, talking to them about video games when no one else was talking to them. So be the friendly face that sends cool news to podcasters and bloggers, as well as the really big websites. And um, you'll be amazed what happens. Yeah, I always tell people too, it's like, I know I can get you extra eyes, but it really is up to you to sell the product once I get them there. Yeah. So your, your page has to draw them in. I, I can, I can get some people to go look at your page, but you got to actually be able to sell them on it once they get there. Yeah. I completely agree with you that especially coming from the podcast space and always looking at people that are like, well, you know, especially new podcasts. Well, I just launched and, and here's my numbers. Is that, is that good? Is that the same as everybody else? It's like, don't worry about it. Just be good to your audience that you have and keep talking to them. Because again, if you're a large podcast or a small podcast, no matter what, if you look at it, it's an intimate relationship that you have. These are people that are coming back to you. However often you put out your content that are you're dry you're you're in a car with them when they're driving or while they're at work or whatever that are building a relationship with you and if you take even your smallest audience and throw them say in a classroom and think about how many people are sitting there just looking at you while you tell them something it's it's a very it's overwhelming really if you get mm. sometimes if you think of it in that sense so yeah no that's right <laughs> and it's yeah it's just um make a connection with people but you're right it's one step to get people to a product but you've got to you know get some good artwork and good design uh, around your page and it's worthwhile spending a bit of money to make sure you've got some nice graphics and just finding some good artists or an artist that you really like who's willing to work with you and that paid off for us with acting Cthulhu we just had a lot of artwork because we, we had two books out before and we commissioned a load more so I made sure we had a whole bunch of artwork to show people. And things like sculpts and artwork and prototypes, people love seeing that through the Kickstarter. And, uh, I mean, we've been caught out a bit because we've gone so fast that I thought we would have a lot longer to get stuff sculpted up. And, you know, we've been running ahead of ourselves trying to catch up. It is worth doing a lot more preparation, but of course that means paying for stuff before you think it, maybe it will get funded, maybe it won't. So there is a certain risk in Kickstarter being prepared enough. But I think if you, if you do the work, it's, it's definitely worth it. It's one of the best risks I think you can take. And, and running a Kickstarter is one of the most rewarding jobs you can do because you work really hard till two in the morning and then you see the money go up and there's very little jobs that you have where you actually see, you know, the, your actual work paying off, you know, yeah. like that. All right. So before I give the stats for the Thunderbirds Kickstarter, is there anything you would like to share? Any, any places you want to let people know to be able to follow you and Modifius? Well, you can go to modifius.com, uh, which is M O D I P H I U S.com or facebook.com forward slash Modifius or Modifius on Twitter. 
So, and of course, as always, those will be in the show notes as well, along with a link to the Kickstarter. So looking at the Kickstarter, he's got over 2,500 backers so far, uh, doing very well. Like we said, funded, uh, unlocked many stretch goals, looking for other stretch goals, but Thunderbirds is going until Sunday, March 29th, 2015, 2 p.m. Central Time. It looks like when it's going to end. So definitely go out there and check it out if this has sounded interesting to you or this wonderful conversation with Chris, of course. We got to know Chris a bit and his philosophy, which I am 100% fully on board with. This has been an awesome conversation. I'm glad we got to have it. Hopefully you've learned a little bit something about not only Chris and Modifius, but how the game came to be. So go out and check out Thunderbirds and uh, back it if it is something you're interested in. Chris, thank you very much for hanging out with me tonight. It's my pleasure. Thank you. This has been a great, great conversation. I've had a lot of fun having a conversation with you, sir. So I'm really happy that we got this in because I know it was kind of last minute on, on all sides. Yeah. yeah, sure. No, it's been great. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thanks a lot. Again, go check out Thunderbirds on Kickstarter right now, and I will be back with more interviews very soon. Thanks for listening. Thank you for checking out a United Geeks Network family member. If you enjoyed it and are looking for other online media with a geek culture slant, head over to unitedgeeksnetwork.com where you will find Rolling Dice and Taking Names, a podcast by guys who have a passion for tabletop games and happen to have mics. They discuss all forms of tabletop gaming from board games to miniatures to RPGs. The United Geeks Network. You can broadcast your geekiness at unitedgeeksnetwork.com.